Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. Hi, everybody. This is Ethan Nickturn. This is the Road Home Podcast, and I'm uh, happy to be joined by uh, Professor Ann Glag, uh, who's an associate professor of religious studies uh, at the University of Central Florida, um, and uh, also the author of the book *American Dharma: Buddhism Beyond Modernity*. Um, so, Anne, well, welcome to the Road Home Podcast. Oh, hi, Ethan. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, th- there's lots, there's lots of reasons I wanted um, to have you on the podcast, and um, uh, you know your your knowledge and coverage of kind of contemporary movements in in Buddhism, and uh, um, you know. I, I, I love following you on Twitter. Um, <laughs> um, so, but I always ask how people, you know, got interested in Buddhism to, to begin with or got interested in meditation or, you know, and, you know, so I'm, I'm really interested in how you, how, how your path started and how you became, came to be an academic. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. An, well, that, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I guess my um, first encounter with Buddhism came as a teenager and I'd grown up Catholic. I'm from a Catholic, kind of Irish Catholic family um, in Liverpool. And I guess when, you know, as I, you know, as I came to kind of age as a teenager, I, you know, kind of realised that I was gay. Um, and so that I, you know, didn't have a, that I knew that I wouldn't have a place, you know, it, it didn't feel possible for me to stay in Catholicism at that time. Um, but I'd been a very kind of religious kid, you know, I was very kind of oriented towards, you know, existential questions and kind of religious questions. So really just as a young teen, I think, you know, probably 30 and 40, and I just started to you know, kind of explore um, other religions. And I first kind of encountered Buddhism, you know, honestly, really through literature. Um, I think, you know, through like, I'm kind of a little embarrassed, you know, because as a scholar, we're quite critical um, of, you know, the kind of beat literature. Um, But as a teenager, you know, I really kind of gobbled up like the Dharma bums and Allen Ginsberg and, You know, so I really came to kind of Buddhism, you know, through a very kind of romanticized uh, kind of literary form. Um, And then also, you know, as I, you know, got a bit older, you know, I came to university age. So I had to apply, you know, I was getting ready to apply for university when I was 18. And I'd kind of, you know, I'd kind of dug into a lot of, um, you know, kind of literature like Alan Watts and Krishnamurti and, um, you know, Autobiography of a Yogi. You know, some of these, I think, books that are probably, you know, kind of also, you know, have been popular with some of your audience. Um, And I just really, you know, I really wanted to kind of get a deeper knowledge of, you know, the the kind of historic traditions out of which this kind of literature developed. So I went off to, you know, Bristol University, um, you know, with the intention to study uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, and then, you know, kind of ended up focusing, you know, a little bit more on Buddhism, um, because as there were, at the time there were two, um, you know, excellent professors of Buddhism uh, there. So, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, it was, you know, really my my encounter with Buddhism has always been, you know, both a kind of personal existential one and also an academic one. So, um, yeah, so so how did you, I mean, I want to ask how you got into um, uh, writing American Dharma, but I also maybe like you part of at least your expertise, you know, in your book and on social media, which is too big, big, big realm, <laughs> you know, ex- expressing your expertise is sort of, you know, to study a lot of the different movements in contemporary Buddhism, especially contemporary Western Buddhism. So what was there something specific that made you want to take sort of that global 
contemporary approach to sort of analyzing movements in contemporary Buddhism? Yeah, yeah. No, it was, you know, it was a long journey. Um, let's see how I can summarize it. So originally, you know, I'd gone the kind of classical Buddhist route. You know, I did my undergraduate degree, you know, in Buddhism, and then I went off to do an MA. Um, with the, in, I was planning to do it. I started the MA in Buddhist studies, planning to actually focus on Chinese Buddhism. Um, and this was like, this was a while ago because I took a big gap out, but it's probably, I think it was 1995 or 1996. And essentially, you know, at that time, you know, there was a lot of kind of really exciting work coming out of like feminism. Um, and so, and you know, I was kind of identified as a queer and I was really into kind of intersectional feminism and kind of post-colonial feminism. And I was really struggling to connect you know, my kind of classical studies of Buddhism with, you know, really with like intersectional feminism and like what it meant to be, you know, a young queer, you know, in a kind of unjust world. Um, and so I basically had a little crisis of like my academic trajectory and I ended up taking quite a lot of time out. I took, I think, seven or eight years out and then I went back to do my PhD and I moved to America. Um, and I think, you know, essentially around that time, I'd kind of, I'd ended up kind of thinking about like, you know, maybe studying, you know, contemporary forms of Buddhism, you know, would be a way for me to um, bring together some of the different parts of like my kind of self, you know, and my different interests. Um, so yeah, so I ended up going more the kind of American Buddhist route. Um, and there's, there's other parts to the story. I had some issues with funding for language school, which, you know, made it hard for me to go the classical route as well. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I just kind of, you know, through, you know, through, through a couple of things like that, I ended up landing on, you know, the contemporary Buddhist landscape. Um, and as you keep on referring to Twitter, um, you know, I think that, you know, that's another thing that I just, I've, I've, a lot of my research has also ended up being tracking, you know, contemporary Buddhism online. Um, so I do spend a lot of time on social media and it's a mix of kind of work and um, kind of indulgence as well. I also spend, uh, too, <laughs> I spend too much time on Twitter these days, but um, may, maybe now with the inauguration, I can spend a little bit less. Um, we, we'll see how it goes. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, so talk to me about you know writing this book, uh, American Dharma, um, where you look at uh, a lot of these uh, movements in contemporary Buddhism, and then then I want to ask a question because it kind of you know it, it piques my interest because it's something I I studied in university postmodernism and themes, you know, themes like structuralism and post-structuralism. So uh, how you bring modernism and postmodernism into sort of contemporary movements in Buddhism was really interesting to me. So um, how, how did this book come about, uh, American yeah. Dharma? Yeah, so essentially, you know, it was quite interesting because I ended up settling on a dissertation topic of, I was looking at it was a comparative project on American Buddhism and American Hinduism. And I was really interested in, you know, kind of identifying the kind of specific kind of modernization kind of processes that were happening, you know, in, in those kind of spaces. Um, but as I was doing my ethnographic work, I kind of started to notice that as well as the kind of, modernization processes that were happening that there was also as well as the kind of continuation of the modernization processes that there was also kind of some resistance um and some kind of reflection um on the limits of kind of the modernization of hinduism and and, and buddhism um so that was a kind of like theme that i couldn't really dig deep uh at when i was doing my dissertation because you know it's just we would have been too much to manage. Um, but after my dissertation, when I was, you know, doing postdoc work, I decided, you know, that would be a really good kind of thread to pick up. So I did two ethnographic case studies. Uh, one was on the East Bay Meditation Center 
um, which is in Oakland, uh, California, um, and has been like really a hub for racial justice in American mm-hmm. convert Buddhism. Um, you likely are, are familiar with it. Um, and then the other community is really different. It was a Buddhist geeks community, um, which you know was really about bringing Buddhism into dialogue with millennial culture and technology. Um, but in these, you know, so in these two different projects, I really saw, you know, again this really clear theme of both the continuation and also a kind of correction or an attempted correction of modernity, um, and so. In thinking about, well, how can I theorize that? It doesn't fit into like the modern framework. So that kind of moved me into, you know, thinking about, well, how does, you know, postmodernism or postcolonialism or the post secular, you know, as frameworks, you know, do, do they account for this phenomena better? Um, so then, you know, I just decided to do a new book project. So I think a lot of people, you know, when they finish their dissertation, you, you just really feel like you want to break from it. So I had a lot of like, you know, juice in this new project um, anyway. And so that project, you know, that new project ended up, you know, a few years later, you know, being being the American Dharma book. Um, so, so, yeah, that's kind of how I landed there. So. Uh, this might be hard to say, uh, you know, succinctly, but just just for folks who, you know, uh, for example, did not take a, a modern culture and media course at Brown University, which is where <laughs> I, um, like, can you kind of succinctly define in general modernism or modernity and postmodernism, you know, for for people who haven't read, you know, one of the one of the um, 20, late 20th century French cultural critics, you know, like like Derrida or Jean Baudrillard or somebody like that, you know, yeah. all these people that I, I only knew their names because I was trying to get some girl's attention, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I haven't read that much Derrida myself, you know, so um, just as a heads up to the viewers, you know, uh, the listeners that, you know, they're not alone. Um, so, yeah, so modernity um, essentially refers both to an historical time period Um, which is generally dated from the late 15th century to the, I guess, mid or, yeah, normally like the mid 20th century. Um, So it's an historic period which saw like huge, you know, hugely significant kind of cultural and political shifts that really changed the landscape of, you know, Western culture. Um, I'm just focusing on modernity here as a Western phenomenon. Um, And then as well as an historic period, it also refers to a kind of set of kind of philosophical and social and cultural and even kind of religious, you know, kind of ideas and ideals. So some of the kind of, you know, shifts that happen in, in modernity are, you know, well, well, often it's, you know, dated to the Protestant Reformation. So the Protestant Reformation really kind of shattered, you know, the kind of medieval Christian world, you know, both the cosmology and also the kind of institutional world. Um, It really, you know, brought a kind of focus on the individual um, and, you know, was kind of really key to the kind of print and press and the kind of democratization of religious literature. Modernity is also characterized by the development of science biomedicine and technology. Um, Modernity also witnesses the growth of industrialization and capitalism. Um, It is in terms of uh, ideals, modernity puts a kind of emphasis on human reason, on the empirical method, um, on the individual, um, on democracy and the nation state. Um, It's really enamored you know by the idea of progress and evolution and modernity often defined itself in opposition to the traditional world Um, so you know often modernity would you know like modern like philosophers and kind of advocates would talk about you know the traditional world is like the world of superstition and irrationality and the modern world is you know the the age of reason and human maturity and human progress um and then you know the other big thing that happens in you know modernity that's really you know relevant to to my work is you know the kind of 
the colonial project, um, co you know, uh, colonialism. And so the colonial period overlaps with modernity. It refers to an historic period between 15th and 20th centuries when, you know, the newly emerged European nation states basically, you know, go on these huge conquests and establish kind of colonies across the world. Um, colonialism, of course, is a project of domination, political, economic, religious and cultural domination. And the colonized, the European colonizers, um, you know, they, they were really, you know, they were convinced of their own kind of right to, you know, colonize, you know, other parts of the world. Um, and they basically justified, you know, their superiority, you know, through, through modernity, you know, through, you know, essentially saying, you know, like, you know, we've developed these modern, you know, systems of science and these modern values of individualism and democracy. And we're going to bring that to these, you know, you know, quotation marks, primitive kind of nations. And then in the religious sphere, you know, colonialism was, you know, closely linked to Christian missionary work. And you had, you know, this kind of idea that Christianity was the most evolved religion. You know, it was basically a kind of scientific, almost scientific evolutionary reading of religion, which kind of put Christianity at the pinnacle and all the, you know, again, highly quotation marks, primitive or heathen religions or pagan religions, you know, below it, including Buddhism. Um, and so this idea that, you know, the, the modern colonizers, you know, were going to go to, you know, all across the world and bring civilization and Christianity. Um, so, so yeah, that's just a very, you know, short summary of modernity um, and colonialism. Um, do you need more or do you think that? No, I mean, maybe oh. just talk a little bit about postmodernity then. What is, what is the, what is the, the general shift into postmodernity? Well, I, I do want to do that, but I think it might also be, before I go into the postmodern, it might be useful just to talk a little bit of like, well, what was the impact of modernity on Buddhism? Beautiful. Thank is you. That okay? yeah. is that, right. So, so basically when the, you know, the, the frame, the, the term modern Buddhism, um, or we now use more commonly Buddhist modernism, um, was ba is basically an academic framework that was developed to understand uh, these new and distinct forms of Buddhism that emerge from the encounter between traditional Asian Buddhism and Western modernity under these conditions of colonialism. So essentially you had, you know, several kind of scholars of, you know, Buddhist studies, George Bond, Donald Swearer, uh, Donald Lopez, um, David McMahon, um, basically, you know, charted these shifts that were happening in, you know, Asian Buddhist countries as a result of the interaction between the Buddhists and the modernizers. And essentially, I think, um, you know, they came, you know, they looked at different contexts. So, you know, some scholars looked at Buddhism in Southeast Asia, in, you know, Sri Lanka and Thailand, um, in Burma, Myanmar now. Um, and others looked, you know, at countries that weren't under, like, like Japan wasn't under, wasn't directly colonized, but still, you know, Japanese Buddhists were in dialogue with, you know, modernity as a kind of cultural and philosophical kind of revolution. And so essentially you get these new kind of reformed, you know, forms of Buddhism appearing. And some of the kind of common characteristics of Buddhist modernism um, are, so number one, one is a claim to return to the kind of original or pure or authentic teachings of the Buddha. So this was like the basic, you know, argument was you know, Buddhism, you know, the Buddha started, you know, you know, taught this, you know, like new radical, you know, religion. Um, and, you know, it's kind of gotten a lot, you know, and, you know, the Asians have done a terrible job at looking after it. And they've just kind of, you know, like hidden, they've just kind of layered it with all of these kind of, you know, cultural and kind of superstitions and kind of metaphysical beliefs. But, you know, as a modern reader or as a modern, you know, monastic or as, you know, a modern, 
scholar, we can get back to this original Buddhism. Um, now, you know, that's a very product, it's a very, if, you know, probably, a, you know, likely your audience, you know, are not familiar with Protestant, you know, kind of thinking, but that actually mirrors, you know, what the Protestants kind of said about Christianity. You know, the Protestants were like, you know, the Catholic Church has kind of, you know, lost the plot, it's lost the essential teachings of the of the New Testament. And, you know, it's got all of these metaphysical, like, you know, layers, all of these saints, um, you know, all of these corrupt authorities, but we're going to get back to, you know, the New Testament. So essentially what happens is that you just see that there's a kind of, it's like a Protestant Buddhism. You know, there's this kind of approach to Buddhism that's really shaped by that kind of modern Protestant kind of um, orientation. Mm -hmm. um, a second characteristic that happens is that Buddhism becomes framed as a kind of inherently rational, scientific and empirical religion. Um, and this is probably, you know, the form of Buddhism that, you know, most kind of Americans are familiar with, you know, mm -hmm. that they kind of really like when I have undergraduate students, you know, they come into the class, you know, always with the nearly always with this kind of belief that, you know, Buddhism is really scientific. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason that they have that belief is, you know, as a consequence of you know, the shaping of Buddhism under the pressures of modernity. So because the modern world and the modernizers, you know, really, um, you know, they really regarded science so highly, then the Buddhists had to kind of respond, they had to kind of prove themselves against that Western ideal of science. Mm -hmm. So they actually do something that's really sneaky, you know, so they say, look, you know, look, you colonizers, like you're coming here and saying, you know, the West is the best because we've got science and Christianity. Um, but they say, like, actually, Buddhism is more scientific than Christianity. So they kind of accept, you know, these kind of modern categories and modern values. And they, then they kind of subvert them to work for Buddhism to kind of say, hey, actually, Buddhism is the most scientific religion. Mm. So, you know, they're just, you know, a couple of characteristics that hopefully will give you know, your audience, a sense of how Buddhism, you know, is, is selectively uh, presented um, to kind of appeal to these kind of modern values, if that makes sense. Oh, and then the other thing that I will say that I think is really important is that a really big thing that happens in the modernization of Buddhism under colonialism is that meditation, the practice of meditation, uh, becomes both revi re revitalized, revived, um, and also kind of democratized. Mm. So, you know, for the first, again, this is also, you know, something my students are always so surprised, you know, to, to hear that historically, you know, only a small percentage of traditional Buddhists meditated. You know, meditation right. was, you know, just, a, it was just for a kind of an elite, you know, group of monks. But of course, under, you know, the modern, the modern kind of modernization process, you know, meditation becomes something for the first time that's really offered en masse to the householders. And then, you know, that's kind of the insight. That's where like the insight lineage comes from. Um, so so basically so that's basically, you know, how modern Buddhism is formed, you know, in this encounter between, you know, modernity and Asian Buddhism and also, you know, under the unequal, um, in, in an unequal context of colonialism, you know, so it's an, it's a dialogue, it is a dialogue, you know, there are many Asian monastics who are absolutely key to the formation of Buddhist modernism, like it's not just a Western phenomena, like Asian monastics themselves had, you know, a lot of agency um, mm -hmm. and um, like innovation. Um, but the dialogue is happening in this fundamentally unequal way, you know, of of colonialism. Um, so then, okay, so then in terms of like postmodernism, so, you know, essentially, like, as I was saying, you know, when I was doing my ethnography at the East Bay Meditation Society and the Buddhist Geek Society, I was noticing that some of the things that I was seeing, you know, in these communities 
you know, we're really compatible with these, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that's definitely a modernist characteristic. Like, you know, there's an emphasis on meditation. Um, but I also noticed at the same time that there was also pushback, you know, towards some characteristics of Buddhist modernism. Um, and so that's when I started to think about, you know, postmodernism as a, as a, as a, as another framework to understand what was happening on the ground in American Buddhist communities. So what is postmodernism? I think you're going to ask me. So postmodernism is, you know, even it's a very contested, um, and complex term. Um, in my, so often people think, you know, immediately they go to someone like Derrida, you know, like a, a, a postmodern or post-structuralist philosopher. I actually don't use it in that way. I use postmodernism in, in my book in a sociological way. Mm-hmm. And sociologically, um, postmodernity is understood as a both an extension or a continuation of modern values um, but also as a critique and interrogation of modern values. And postmodernity, as in that sense, is often dated to the mid-20th century, um, basically after the world wars and, you know, the nuclear kind of, the nuclear bomb going off in Japan, being set off in Japan. And just like, you know, essentially, you know, a lot of the modern beliefs, you know, were you know, wow, the modern world is just going to go from strength to strength. You know, we're on this ladder of evolution and progress. You know, we're going to develop these great humanistic ethics. Um, But that didn't happen. You know, the 20th century witnessed, you know, this intense violence. And Mm -hmm. so it really led to a period of philosophers and cultural theorists reflecting on, you know, what's gone wrong with modernity. You know, so in that sense, it is the interrogation of modernity, like, and then, of course, the other thing that's happening is there is a, you know, an increased globalized, globalization starts, you know, with, in the, in the colonial world, but it starts to, you know, increase through the rapid development of, you know, the new communication and information technologies. And then there's also, you know, we also call a, you know, we also distinguish like a late capitalism period um and then you've got this rise of consumer culture so essentially you know to summarize postmodernity, we can say it involves a questioning and superstition of some modern ideals mm-hmm. or meta-narratives are called such as science you know reason and universalism um it tends to celebrate cultural particularity, diversity, difference, and hybridity. Mm. Um, culturally, it's kind of, aesthetically, it's kind of marked by a kind of bricolage, you know, and a kind of blending of different high and low cultures. Um, and closely related to postmodernism is postcolonialism. Mm-hmm. And essentially, postcolonialism refers, like modernism, refers both to an historic period in which the colonized nations establish independence um, and also to a kind of set of ideas and theories that critique the legacies of colonialism. And so some of the you know, main points of postcolonialism, it kind of overlaps with postcolonialism, are you know, this kind of interrogation of universalism and individualism and liberalism and a kind of recovery of some of the you know voices the marginalized voices indigenous people who had been kind of erased and silenced in modernity um so essentially you know postmodernity is this kind of conversation postmodernity is like what comes after modernity historically and it's also a kind of conversation and a critique and a continuation of the ideals of modernity. Right. Sorry, this is so much information. So, no, it's great. It's great. So just to, just to jump in, like when you're when you're talking about the uh, modernity's, you know, um, intersection uh, with Buddhism or Buddhism's rise within that that space or within those values and, and those worldviews. 
you know, some of it felt, you know, very colonial and co-optive, you know, like the idea that the the modern Western, you know, usually white Buddhist thinks, you know, we are doing this better, you know, we, we have a more scientific or psychological approach where we're returning to what the Buddha actually meant here, you know, and yeah, that's a really good expression. Um, and, uh, and, and so some of it feels, you know, really, I mean, aggressive, violent, or, you know, just co-optive, um, some of it, you know, struck me as like, oh, that's great. Like, like a democratization of who gets to meditate, you know, that it's not yeah. just a small, yeah. uh, a small monastic community. So how does, um, what do you see as some of the postmodern movements in, in Buddhism that are, that are happening now? And is it, is it equally kind of, some of it feels good, some of it feels bad, or does it actually feel like a positive evolution for you? No, no, I think I'm really glad that you kind of emphasize the kind of, you know, the mix of the modern, you know, that I think, you know, there's a lot, you know, there's definitely a lot to critique about modernity. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, valuable things from modernity. And in one way, I think, you know, like in some ways you could think of like post-modernity and post-colonialism. Um, like in, you know, again, they're like huge terms so there's you know there's different there's different you know expressions of them but you know in one sense you can think that you know they're really you know they're kind of asking they're at they're saying they're pointing out the ways in which the modern world doesn't live up to its own ideals you know so you know the modern world you know you know origin you know it, it, it prides itself on like democracy but we know at the beginning of, you know, modernity, it was only like white men who could vote, you know. So it was like it was like a partial view of modernity, you know, a part. It was a partial. It was it was a it had there was an ideal of democracy. But in practice, it wasn't, you know, enacting itself on the ground. And I think that you can think of, you know, some of the things happening in, you know, the postmodern or the postcolonial as, you know, really, you know, you know, pushing modernity to really be democratic. Like, what does democracy, you know, really look like? You know, so so I think that that is something really good that's happening, you know, in terms of it's not a complete rejection of Buddhist modernism, but it is really interrogating, you know, the kind of limits of Buddhist modernism. Um, I think, you know, something really good, I think that's happening is, you know, the racial justice work. Um, you yourself just mentioned, you know, this kind of Western, you know, white ethnocentric view of, you know, we're doing Buddhism better. Um, but when we look at the white convert sanghas, you know, we see that, okay, there is democratization that's happened, you know, in, in terms of, say, householders or teachers. And, it, you know, there's a, it's not just a monastic authority. And also say, okay, well, there's a lot of like female teachers um, but then on the other hand, you can see, well, you know, the female teachers are all white and, you know, the sangha is pretty white as well. You know, so it hasn't got this like racial diversity. There's not much class kind of diversity. So, you know, in that sense, I think some of the, you know, postmodern, postcolonial manifestations of Buddhism, you know, are really, um, you know, really enacting, you know, embodying you know you know some of these kind of real ideals where it's a sangha for everyone you know um so yeah so i think racial the racial justice work for me is like the best of buddhist you know mm. buddhism beyond modernity you know mm. so yeah i mean I, I, you know i want to get your take too on this uh, as because i want to shift you've you've done a lot of work also to look into what some of the weirder, um, uh, you know, strands or kind of subdivisions of, of, you know, Buddhist groups and, and, you know, other kind of, you know, yoga groups, et cetera. Um, but I, I, I kind of, you know, the conversation I always come back to, and I'm wondering now if this is just my sort of like modernity or strong post-modernity, I'm not sure, but like, I've, I've always felt that, that Buddhism, you know, was, was meant to be a political practice as well, you know, and, and that the teachings, you know, really, um, 
work with that sort of you know political uh, framework. They're, they are very personal in some ways, but also that you know they're about interdependence and sangha, and you know values of compassion, etc. And I always had a hard time viewing like how does that not automatically go towards the the, the political. So I wonder like is i mean would this be just us taking the modernist approach of saying like when you say the racial justice piece is some of the best of of you know buddhist post-modernity like is are we because i agree with what you're saying and is what we're saying there that like the that it's just the best that it's the part that we like the most or are we saying that it somehow aligns with the meaning of these teachings and practices and philosophies and traditions um, do, do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I do hear what you're saying. I'm just, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of, there's just a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot in what you say. So I think the first thing is that, you know, there is a kind of, a very kind of um, popular idea in the West, um, especially amongst white Buddhists, that Buddhism is apolitical you know, that it's not political um, and that they see, they generally see, you know, they make that claim. They say Buddhism's, you know, apolitical or transcends politics. And they claim that, you know, racial justice work is a kind of intrusion of progressive politics, you know, you know, and, you know, and literally like, you know, because you probably saw me, seen me like, fighting on Twitter about this you know they'll say things like it's an invasion of you know or an infection like they use quite intense language of you know progressive politics or identity politics um into you know this apparently apolitical tradition um like no scholar of Buddhism would ever argue that Buddhism is apolitical like Buddhism as an historic tradition has always been political so it's you'd ask me, you know, when we talked before, is Buddhism inherently political? And I, I wouldn't use the language of inherent, but I'd use the language of historic. Like if we look at Buddhism mm. historically, we can see that politics manifests on a number of, of levels. So, you know, there's the in the texts across, you know, the Pali Canon and the Mahayana Sutras and uh, the, Vaj the Tantras, you know, the, the literature of Vajrayana Buddhism, you know, we find you know, political exchanges. We find, you know, the Buddha given advice to kings and to, you know, kind of state figures. Um, there's a lot of political metaphors in the tradition itself. And then historically, you know, Buddhism has been, you know, has been so closely interlinked with the, you know, with, you know, with different kind of nationalist kind of projects. Um, so Buddhism is always political. Buddhism is always political, but when Buddhist modernism is constructed, it's constructed both by scholars and also kind of Buddhist modernist teachers like, say, D.T. Suzuki. It is kind of presented as, you know, this kind of apolitical, kind of transcendent kind of mind state, you know. Um, and so I think that that's where a lot of the confusion around these issues comes, you know, that it's like, you know, that that's why a lot of people you know, are, you know, confused that Buddhism is, you know, they think Buddhism is apolitical. So we can say for sure Buddhism is political. Now, the next part of the question I would say is, okay, but how, in what way has it been political? You know, so has it been historically politically conservative or is it historically being politically progressive, right? Um, and so I would say that like looking through the, you know, looking at the history of Buddhism and the and the, and the and the Buddhist canon, I'd say the dominant form of politics in Buddhism has lent more to what we would probably think of as more conservative. So in early Buddhism, for example, you have, you know, this kind of notion of the kind of enlightened monarch, you know, and, you know, this kind of Dharma king. And, you know, the sense that the Dharma king is going to be like, you know, just as the Buddha is like the kind of, you know, transcendent king of the realm, the Dharma king is like the representative. Um, not not unlike the way, you know, you find in, in also in Christianity where there's a kind of, you know, divine hierarchy that's kind of also kind of mirrored in a social hierarchy. 
Um, so that is certainly present in Buddhism in the canon and historically, you know, this interlinking of Buddhism with, you know, state power um, and imperial power. However, there's also, you know, a narrative, a kind of lineage in Buddhism of, you know, Buddhists who were more kind of oriented to, you know, more like radical social action. So that you could, you know, make the argument, and some scholars do, you know, that they're kind of earlier precursors to, you know, the kind of engaged Buddhism that we see, you know, with the racial justice work. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot, I've been, you know, thinking a lot about this because, you know, originally I used to think, I used to agree with the theory that, because there's a couple of different kind of theories in Buddhist scholarship, and originally I used to agree that progressive Buddhism, you know, only really begins, you know, as part of Buddhist modernism, you know, because social mm. reform is, you know, another mark of Buddhist modernism. Um, but actually recent scholarship, you know, because, you know, the other thing is, is that there's so much of, you know, Buddhism that we don't know about, you know, the study of Buddhism is, you know, quite, quite young. Um, and there's some really, really, really exciting scholarship that is really basically looking at, you know, it's rediscovering, it's recovering a kind of marginalized Buddhist kind of lineage. Mm. So, um, you know, one, you know, one, one great, great kind of uh, project that's happening is by a guy called Dr. Nicholas Witowski. And he's looking at early Buddhist monasticism. And he's kind of showing that there were kind of lower caste kind of Buddhist monastics who, you know, had a kind of radical, you know, had a had a radically different vision than the Brahmin Buddhist monastics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've been kind of erased out of the canon. Um, and then you've got another, I've got another colleague called Dr. Stephanie Borkwell, and she's really recovering a kind of lineage in medieval Chinese Buddhism, you know, that is also, you know, engaged in, you know, a kind of radical kind of social practice that she argues is a kind of precursor to like modern progressive Buddhism. So essentially, I think where I'm at now is, you know, just kind of being more open minded and, you know, rather than, you know, just thinking of, oh, can canonical Buddhism is political, but po is just politically conservative. Mm -hmm. I'm now kind of, you know, feeling that, you know, from its beginnings, you know, Buddhism has, has always been political and has always had, you know, different political orientations that we, you know, might map onto the more progressive, but also the more conservative. Right. And, you know, these are tensions that have gone, you know, like just as we're seeing, you know, this play out now in the American context with the backlash to racial justice, like in a way you can, you know, you can think of it as these kind of threads of the tradition that are being worked out in different ways in different cultural spaces. Yeah. So I don't know, does that, does that, did I kind of stay on point? For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, one, one big one that I would say is more progressive, you know, a, after reading uh, Isabel Wilkerson's great book cast this year that, that the Buddha did create this, uh, at least the monastic community that that basically disbanded the the caste system. I mean, he still very much in, interacted with the power hierarchies uh, outside of his monastic community, but that feels like a radically progressive um, step. But maybe it wasn't a complete. Uh, yeah, step. I think. Yeah, no, I mean, it's quite interesting with caste because like caste you're right I mean caste is a great example again to show you know the kind of complexity and the kind of two threads because on the one hand like you know definitely we have this kind of you know lineage of the Buddha you know rejecting caste and you know do it having this like real you know radical act um and then you know later on of course with Ambedkar you know you see you know that kind of Ambedkar you know, really, you know, kind of pick up on that and, you know, and have the oversee this mass conversion of Dalits to Buddhism as this kind of socially radical, you know, engaged religion. Right. But at the same time, we know historically that caste and has actually always played a role in Buddhism in a discriminate in a discriminatory way. Mm. So there's a scholar called Jeffrey Samuels who looks at monastic orders in Sri Lanka, and he shows how you know some monastic orders will only accept you know 
people from certain castes. So again, you know, you've got, and there's also, I think there's also a couple of places in the Pali Canon where the Buddha seems to uphold caste distinction as well as places where he clearly challenges it. So you've just got so much going on in the Buddhist, not just in the Buddhist scriptures, but also what was actually happening in reality on the ground, because, you know, the scriptures are, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, then it's not like a, it's not a screenshot of what was like exactly happening on the ground, you know? So I think just in terms of like politics and like radical action and Buddhism, you know, essentially, you know, I would just say as a scholar and I'm also learning myself from my, you know, from my, from my colleagues, um, I would just kind of, like think there is a lineage I think in Buddhism that supports radical social action, but there's also lineages that which lend themselves to, you know, conservatism and nationalism and forms of like ethnocentric Buddhism, not just, you know, Western ethnocentric Buddhism, but what we're seeing now with the nationalist movements in Southeast Asia, you know, that would be very, um, you know, from a progressive sensibility are very problematic. And I actually think they are legitimately Buddhist. So my take is, you know, it's all Buddhist, you know. So to me, it's not like what is like the true Buddhist political stance. I I don't really think like that as a scholar. To me, you know, it's more like what causes the most violence, you know. Right, 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 right. So that maybe that's, I mean, there's so much I want to ask you. And I know we're we're coming towards our time uh, and, you know, so many other other themes I wanted to, you know, ask you about QAnon, you know, and. Um, you know, have a deeper conversation, although I think we've touched on it in sort of like some of these modern right-wing movements, you know, uh, among people calling themselves Buddhists. But I wonder if, is the solution not to say, I'm do- this is doing the real Buddhism, that's not doing the real Buddhism, but to just say, like to know the different complex movements within the tradition, which feels humble and kind of, you know, knowing your history to a certain degree or not knowing your history, but knowing what you don't know. And and then just saying like, this is actually what feels more awakened or more compassionate or less violent. Like, uh, I mean, does that save some of the problems of like colonizing Buddhism when we say, you know, I'm not going to say, for example, that racial justice, you know, or um, politics or, you know, or um, even like having a more psychological, uh, you know, approach to Buddhism, which which I would say I have a slightly more psychological than spiritual or religious approach. So if I don't try to couch it in terms of like, is this the real, is this not the real, but, but sort of say, this is what feels the most important to bring out or the most important to express, does, does that save it from the kind of modernist colonial uh, impulse or is there still a danger there? No, I would say... First of all, I would say I want to like shout like in caps. Yes, yes. You know, I would definitely encourage everyone to drop, you know, this notion of the real Buddhism, um, because I think that, you know, essentially, you know, when you erect something like the real, you know, with a capital R, you know, you're going to basically be doing violence to other forms of practice that fall outside of, you know, of that, of what you consider the real. Um, and also, I mean, it just, you know, it doesn't make sense as a, you know, as an historian of religion, you know, to think in terms of a real religion, because, you know, religion is, is multiple. So I think there's, you know, always kind of having the sense of the pluralism of Buddhism. I mean, as a practitioner, and, you know, also, of course, as you say, the real you know, or the authentic in modern Buddhism has functioned as such a source of violence against, you know, Asian Buddhists and Asian American Buddhists because they've mm. seen as, you know, inauthentic and not doing the real Buddhism. So, yeah, you know, that really, you know, that really, you know, avoids, you know, avoids, you know, avoids that violence. Um, I think that, you know, as a as a Buddhist, as a Buddhist practitioner, I think it really depends, you know, on the type of practitioner you are. I mean, some religious practitioners are, you know, much more comfortable with pluralism, you know, than others. You know, there are some Buddhists themselves who are like super sectarian, you know, who say, you know, I mean, just just, you know, putting modernity aside, if you look at, you know, just, you know, classical Buddhism, there's an immense amount of, you know, sectarian 
fighting and violence. Like, no, we've got the real Dharma. No, you know, so, you know, the, the question of the real Dharma, you know, it's, it's a sectarian question as well as a kind of a question of like grappling with the legacies of modern Buddhism. Um, but I would say definitely like, you know, a cultural awareness and kind of humility I think, uh, you know, two really important qualities that I would encourage, you know, like your audience, you know, to kind of cultivate in the, you know, as as Buddhists or, you know, Buddhist identified uh, people. And, you know, you, you find that you find like you will work with, you know, the, 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 you, all Buddhisms are also selective, right? So there's going to be, you're going to be drawn to certain doctrines or certain practices, you know, over others, you know? Mm. And so I would just claim that and, you know, not worry about, you know, proving that as, as you know, more authentic than other Buddhists. Mm. Well, that, that feels like a good place to, to stop our discussion, but I, I've definitely uh, learned a lot today. And so um, for those of you who, um, forgot. I'm I'm here with uh, Professor Anne Glag um, from uh, her book. Uh, we're talking about American Dharma Buddhism Beyond Modernity, um, and also just give a shout out to your to your Twitter handle because I think uh, <laughs> it's great great to follow and and you have a lot of a lot of threads about all these intersectional issues that are that are really helpful. So it's at a g l e i g um, on Twitter and. Donald Trump is no longer on Twitter, so that means we can be. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for being on the Road Home podcast. It's really, it's really been like a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful office hours with you. <laughs> oh, great! Well, thanks, Ethan, and I'm sorry if I rambled. You know, as an academic, we do we do kind of ramble a bit, um, but I will say that I think you know everything is like quite clearly explained in my book. So I encourage people to buy my book. Sorry to kind of self-promote there. That's that's what podcasts are for. So, <laughs> thank yeah. you. American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity. So uh, thank you all so much for listening and for the Road Home Podcast. This is Ethan Nickturn, and uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah.